Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Professional welder Shayna Ford used VR training developed by ForgeFX to hone her skills as a welder. The more time that you spend practicing it, that's what separates a good welder from a great welder. VR training can help students like Shayna repeatedly practice specific skills. Virtual reality definitely helps because the more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Explore more stories like Shayna's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. The following podcast is a Dear Media production. Welcome to Raising Good Humans. I'm Dr. Aliza Pressman and Today, I am so excited to have a conversation with Susan Cain, New York Times bestselling author of Quiet, the Power of Introverts in a World That Can't Stop Talking. She has a website, The Quiet Revolution. She has just done so much cool work on the power of introverts. And her latest book is so special. It's called Bittersweet, How Sorrow and Longing Make Us Whole. And we're talking about bittersweet because it really calls into question the way we treat emotions and experiences, the way we over-promote positivity and optimism, which are wonderful things, but they don't need to be the only things, and the way we pathologize melancholy and how we can do a little bit better at helping our children experience the range of emotions that make up being a human being and help when kids are experiencing emotions that are typically more challenging. If you enjoy this episode, don't hesitate to subscribe, rate, and write a little review. Every review that you write helps generate more coverage for the podcast and get the word out there more. I will put in the show notes a link to buy Susan's new book. And also, if you go to susankane.net, You can take the bittersweet quiz to learn a little bit more about your personal orientation and to gain insight into the orientation of your children and remembering the often overlooked powers of bittersweetness. What I love most about this conversation is the emphasis on how there really is no right or wrong way to be. We just are who we are and sometimes we forget to embrace the parts of who we are and how we feel that may in fact be so powerful. And when we can appreciate this whole range of ways of being in the world, we can help our children feel valued for exactly who they are. And just to start this conversation, I'm going to give you Susan's definition of bittersweetness. Bittersweetness is a tendency to states of longing, poignancy, and sorrow an acute awareness of passing time, and a curiously piercing joy at the beauty of the world. It's also about the recognition that light and dark, birth and death, bitter and sweet are forever paired. My 12-year-old 
who at, at seven years old was a very different, she is a very different kind of person than I am. So my older daughter, I really get because we're so similar. Yeah. My younger daughter and my older daughter and I were sitting at the dinner table. It was just the three of us. It's usually just the three of us. And I said to my daughter, which I guess I said all the time to her, you don't look happy. What's wrong? And she said to me, just because I'm not smiling does not mean I'm not happy. And you and Penelope walk around and she kind of made a face making fun of our like hyper chipper way of being. (laughs) Uh And she said, I, and she said, I have no idea if you're happy. That's just how you look. So this is just something you should learn about me. (laughs) Wow. Yeah. I can't get over how self-aware she is and also how self-comfortable she is. That's wonderful. It was pretty cool. And it was one of my great parenting lessons. And it was, I was not proud because I'm a psychologist (laughs) and it really was a moment. And then I read all of your books because I had been, I had heard I should anyway, but I realized maybe there's other ways. I, I really was trying to get to know my daughter and this was just another way. And then I started to really just view the world a bit differently. And what this is, this may be something you hear a lot, but I feel like this new book, it's the same thing for me, which is turning, turning the field of like my field a little bit upside down to make sure that we don't turn natural human experiences into psychopathology. And in fact, forget about turning them into pathology but actually start to uncover all the benefits. And I felt the same way about kind of getting to know a different way of being and temperament that, you know, of this quiet child that I have, letting go of some of the extreme clinging we have to removing a lot of the feelings that you talk about from our children's experiences is so necessary and so beautiful. Oh, gosh. Well, thank you. And it's also so interesting to talk to you from your psychologist perspective, because I really did feel with both Quiet and with this new book, Bittersweet, and maybe we should say for people listening what Bittersweet is about, so they'll know what we mean. But with both books, I felt like, oh my gosh, I really want to be talking you know, straight to the field of psychology, because in both cases, I, I have felt like there's a kind of unwitting blind spot in the fields, you know, Mm -hmm. both with respect to introverts and then with respect to this human experience of, of melancholy that is incredibly different from depression, but gets lumped together within the field. Absolutely. Well, let me take a step back to say bittersweetness to me is about the deep recognition that joy and sorrow and light and dark are forever paired and that everybody who everybody and everything that we love most in this world is impermanent. And while everything I just said could sound like a kind of depressing realization, excuse me, there's something about being attuned to that precarity and fragility of life that is also intimately connected with a, a kind of piercing, exultant joy at the beauty of the world. And I've spent the last years immersed in what I call the bittersweet tradition because 
our religions and our artists and writers and musicians and thinkers have been talking about this for thousands of years and across cultures. And, and the lesson of all these traditions is that these insights are connected to creativity and connection and transcendence. And yet we live in a culture that tells us and tells us as parents too, that everything should be cheerful and smiling all the time. And, and while, you know, happiness and cheerfulness are all wonderful emotions, they, to, to expect our children and ourselves to live only in that one emotional uh, timbre all the time makes no sense. And it ultimately robs us from, of some of our deepest, some of our deepest, deepest experiences as humans. I want to think about the lens of as we're raising our kids in in this world now where we we may have tried to you know so many parents are are feeling like well I've I feel so guilty for the world that I've given to my children we collectively have given to our children and the experiences that they're having and I wonder and I I've said this before and I I would take out the category of children for whom this last couple of years has caused so much trauma and pain because they are from communities where there just wasn't enough to be able to stay supported. But for those who were lucky enough to be in households where there were other support systems and socioeconomic systems in place, I wonder if those kids having experienced other ways of having to just be in the world will come out sort of more fulfilled for it. Yeah, more fulfilled and with a greater sense of what life really is like. Because I think if you're talking about children who are growing up, pandemic aside, in relatively comfortable circumstances, there is very much a feeling of like, Life is when everything is going well, and when things aren't going well, that's not life. That's like something's gone horribly wrong and mm. turned upside down. And so, like, not only is the thing itself difficult to bear, but there's also a kind of like frantic, like I've got to get back to real life. Like I've been cast out of real life when things aren't going well, and that's. That's just not true, but it's something that we unwittingly teach our children. So how can we teach lessons? So I want to talk about the way you discuss compassion and connection. And I, gosh, I, I really want to talk about longing. I have so many, like, <laughs> I remember listening to Les Miserables musical as a kid and sobbing and oh, like gosh. having it on replay all the time. And my mom was like, okay. <laughs> And, and she was worried that I was depressed. <laughs> and I like really derived some kind of deep joy from like reading and listening to music that made me sad. Yes. And you really go through that. And I'd love for you to explain what was happening. Yeah. I mean, it was actually experiences exactly like what you had with Les Miserables. And I think I had it too with that musical and also with them because we're, we're probably 
similar age, also with cats, that, you know, Grizabella, <laughs> the glamour cat, yeah, who was this tragic figure and sang that song, Memory, that everybody loved. And, you know, why did everyone love that song so much? It's like such a sad song, and yet people love it. And that's really what started this whole quest for me, because I would listen to music like that and experience a kind of uplift and sense of communion with other people, the likes of which was hard to get in regular day-to-day life. But like you could listen to that music and reliably be transported to this sort of higher semi-ecstatic state of communion. And how could it be that something ostensibly sad would deliver us reliably to states like that? And it's not just you and me, you know, there's many, many, many people who have this reaction to that kind of music. There's this one study that found that people whose favorite songs are the happy songs in their playlist, listen to them about 175 times. But people whose favorite songs are the Les Miserables songs, they listen 800 times to those songs. And they tell researchers that when they listen, they feel a sense of, you know, what researchers call the sublime emotions of transcendence and wonder. So... There's something about that. It's something about the the musician transforming pain into beauty, which is clearly what they're doing. And the fact that they're reminding us that we're not alone during the moments in our lives where we, we feel pain too. It's a kind of like willingness to tell the truth about life's experiences, not only the easy, happy ones, but the difficult ones, and then to go even further and take it to a place of such intense beauty. It's like, like the, the, the lesson of, of this bittersweet tradition that we've inherited from all our different religious and artistic heritages. They're all basically telling us that that's what we can do. You know, we're all going to be beset by by some kind of pain at some point. And you have the option of ignoring that and having your head in the sand and probably taking it out on yourself or on somebody else at some point. Or you have the option of trying to transform that into something else, into something better, more beautiful, more healing. And I think we feel all of that when we listen to that music. So it was the music for me that was the catalyst of this whole inquiry, but it it became something much. I don't want to say much deeper because I think music is probably as deep as it gets, but but much broader than that. Like I started to realize that that this this bittersweetness as a portal to transcendence actually exists in many different manifestations. Is there a place to, you know, connect with that experience with your family so that it's not such an alone experience? Right. I mean, I think you have to really read your particular family member, because some people are more prone to these bittersweet states than other people. Some people, I think it's probably because they came into the world with uh, what Elaine Aaron calls, the psychologist Elaine Aaron calls a highly sensitive temperament, um, which basically means that you react more intensely to everything that life has to offer. So, you know, that the sunset, the gorgeous sunset is that much more beautiful to you. The screeching sound of somebody hitting their brakes is that much more noxious to you that a highly sensitive person kind of just feels everything that much more intensely and 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 so especially if you have a highly sensitive child they're probably going to be pretty 
predisposed to these states of bittersweetness that you and I are talking about and that maybe your daughter feels quite intensely? For sure. Those orchids. (laughs) Yes. Yes. Orchid children, which is the idea just for people who aren't familiar with it. Like all these fascinating studies that, that basically children are either orchids or dandelions and the dandelion children are ones who they're like dandelions growing between planks of a sidewalk. They can grow anywhere. They can thrive anywhere. And then the orchid children are the ones who require much, much uh, more careful conditions for them to grow and thrive. But all these studies find that when those children live in conditions where they are getting everything they need, the love and the security and so on that they need, they bloom like orchids. You know, they, 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 even have better outcomes than dandelion children on all different measures. So it's probably orchid children who tend to be predisposed to this bittersweet state mm-hmm. of existence. And we know this because I, I have this bittersweet quiz at the beginning of the book that anybody can take. And I collaborated for it with the psychologists, Scott Barry Kaufman and David Yaden. And they ran all this data once we had come up with the quiz to find out for people who are high in bittersweetness, what else, what are the other states that they are to have? And one of them is a tendency to be highly sensitive. And then, and then others had to do with like a tendency to absorption, which predicts creativity and to states of awe and wonder and transcendence. So that was all really interesting. So interesting. I wonder if we can, is there a link to the I will put a link to the book in the show notes, but I imagine on your website, there's probably, is there? Yes, there is. So the quiz is in the book. And then also my website is susankane.net and you can take the quiz on the website as well. And now I'm going to take a little break so I can tell you about my sponsor, Coterie. I am so excited to share with you if you have diapers in your life or anybody wearing diapers, these diapers are the most beloved of any of my mom groups. They all say that Coterie is the softest brand and so well-made and not leaky and just fabulous. And they keep your baby drier. They keep your baby feeling comfortable. And Coterie has been awarded Best Diaper and Wipes by The Bump and Parents.com. So it's not just the moms in my mom groups. And right now, Coterie is partnering with Raising Good Humans to offer 20% off your first order plus free shipping at Coterie.com slash humans. That's Coterie spelled C-O-T-E-R-I-E dot com slash humans for 20% off and free shipping. Coterie.com slash humans. And again, I wish I'd had these diapers when my kids were babies because this is hands down the brand that keeps coming up with all my new mommy groups because they are so well-made and also they're made with clothing grade material and they absorb up to two times more liquid capacity and four times faster moisture wicking versus other brands. And importantly, with all of the many questionable materials and baby products these days, it's so nice to know that you can feel safe and protected with Coterie because they are the cleanest and highest performing diapers out there. So I just learned about Slumberkins and I thought it was such a great company because they're an emotional wellness company focused on raising the next generation of caring, confident, and resilient children. 
who would not think that's cool? And each collection that they have teaches a set of skills. They have things like self-esteem, stress relief, authenticity, growth mindset, and more. They have these little creatures. They're snuggly little creatures that have affirmations and books that teach age-appropriate tangible lessons that kids can understand. And it was created by a therapist and educator. So the stories that Slumberkins use have embedded in them sort of therapeutic techniques to help children master these social-emotional skills. The creatures and board books are perfect for ages children zero to eight. Oddly, my children, when I opened them, were like wanting to take some of the creatures. And I was like, no, this is going to one of my dear friends who has a delicious two-year-old. But (laughs) so it is for zero to eight. Use the code HUMANS at checkout for 15% off your first order at www.slumberkins.com, www.slumberkins.com. There is a huge mental health crisis, and there has been a lot of conversation ever since the Surgeon General came out. I mean, there's always been a lot of conversation. There was a mental health crisis pre-pandemic. Yeah. That, you know, the rates of anxiety and depression in particular are so massive, particularly with teens. and. I wonder if we can carefully kind of distinguish between what is actual psychopathology in the sense that I don't even like that way of saying it because anytime you label something as disease or abnormal or, you know, there's some dangerous sign that makes it even worse, but a tendency or a trait to go into this melancholic way of being should not be pathologized. But how can parents distinguish between, and, and and this is also for us as adults, like how can we embrace moments where we're just experiencing a feeling, it's temporary, it comes and goes, it's part of the beauty of being a human and how we can actually experience all of the different ranges of emotions that you talk about. And, and then at what point do you say, okay, this is too much? Right, right. And and these are really good questions because I suspect that the difference between healthy states of bittersweetness versus clinical depression, I suspect the difference is a difference in degree as opposed to a difference in kind. And so it's a little bit more of an art than a science, but you know, I, I think it's all the usual questions of, well, first of all, is the person functional? Is the person feeling or the child feeling happy in general? And as I say, like, so I almost called, I I would have called this book The Happiness of Melancholy, except that I was told by people that that would never sell a single copy. So I didn't. But but my point in saying that is that I'm not actually talking about unhappiness. I'm talking about a different kind of happiness. Mm. So if we're talking about children or adults who feel fundamentally unhappy, that is something to pay attention to. Now, I'm also making the case that it's natural to sometimes feel unhappy or, or and to sometimes have moments of poignancy. And that's not a sign of anything being wrong. That's just a sign of being alive. So, you know, we could say it's like a, a persistent state of unhappiness that makes 
a child or or adult feel like they're not functioning as well as they would like to, you know, and then depression on, on the outer limits is a kind of emotional numbness. So bittersweetness contains within it almost like a, a sense of the ecstatic being around the corner. Clinical depression, I think, feels nothing like that. So the hopelessness is quite a bit different. Yeah, yeah. I'll give you an example of a moment with my children that I wrote about in the book where we were on this family vacation where we had rented a house in the countryside. And this house happened to be located next to a field where there lived two donkeys named Lucky and Norman. And and the boys were little and they fell in love with these donkeys and they spent the whole week feeding them carrots. And then the vacation was almost over and it was going to be time to say goodbye to the donkeys. And the boys were like crying themselves to sleep. They were so incredibly upset. And when we told them the things that parents often say in those, these circumstances, like the donkeys will be okay, another family will come and take care of them, maybe you will come back, none of that helped at all. Mm-hmm. It was only when we said to them that you are experiencing right now having to say goodbye, and that's hard. And that's part of life. And it's going to happen again. And it happens to everybody, these goodbyes. And and the sting of it will wear off in a few days and it won't feel so bad. You'll you'll remember the donkeys happily. But in the meantime, this this feeling that you're having is real and it happens to all of us. And that's when they stopped crying because it's like somebody is telling them, oh, this is just the truth of experience and I'm not alone and it's not weird. They felt um, felt. They, yeah. Yeah. And, and, and I think what they're, I think the message that's sending at that time is that the goodbye itself is painful, but, but you don't have to resist that pain. Like it's normal to feel it. Like, I think part of why they were crying is that they were feeling like, oh my God, this is terrible. This is like the the world is off its axis. I'm not supposed to be feeling this pain. Yeah. As opposed to, well, the pain sucks, but it's natural. Th- those are very different states. Right. I mean, that old pre-psychology, the, the mindfulness, yeah. pain times resistance equals suffering. Exactly. Exactly. So it's a, a kind of removal of, of the resistance and because of a, this deep recognition of the bittersweetness of life. And so in that moment, that was such a good, that really captured that idea of removing the resistance because you're, you're naming what's going on instead of trying to deny what's going on. And in that, like, now your boys know that this is, yeah, this is a very real part of life, but you don't get to experience the, I guess the, it's kind of like the agony and the ecstasy. Like there's, there, yeah. the, there is a sense that we do have to understand like the depth of, you know, in that way that an orchid blooms so beautifully when it's treated, when, when it's given the environment that it needs, or that the feelings that you can have, the ecstatic or the joy or the appreciation for the moment also can come along with an understanding that that moment is temporary. 
Yeah. And that, and that in fact, the more you tend to understand how temporary all these moments are, there are all these studies that I looked at in the book, like the greater your awareness of life's fragility, the more you tend to kind of orient in the direction of meaning, like you orient to more meaningful relationships, you have a deeper sense of gratitude, you're less perturbed by life's uh, vicissitudes and annoyances. And the way we know this is because Laura Karstensen, who's this psychologist at Stanford who studies older people, she started noticing that older people tended to have exactly what I just described, you know, this orientation in terms of meaning. And she assumed at first that, that it had something to do with that folktale that we hear about, you know, age conferring wisdom. So she assumed it it had to do with some magical property of being older. But it turned out that she she found that younger people who had life circumstances that made them more aware of life's fragility, that those younger people had the same kind of emotional and psychological profile as 80-year-olds did. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. It's kind of amazing. But we we see this collectively also. You know, if you look at like after 9-11, people suddenly started signing up for jobs as teachers and firefighters. After the pandemic, you see people signing up for medical school and nursing school. So it's a natural human response when we're reminded of fragility to, 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 to go in this direction of meaning. And meaning kind of goes along with action because you're not talking about like the alternative is to say like, it's all so fragile and frail and temporary. I'm going to get under the covers. Yeah. It's actually just the opposite in some strange way. It's more of like, wow, you know, this is all kind of amazing and beautiful and I have to immerse in it. And the parts of it that remain unbeautiful, I want to, I want to make them better. All right. More from my sponsors, really building on these social emotional well-being companies that are coming out in the world because we are so valuing social emotional well-being. My feels is also an emotional intelligence program for kids created by a mom and a therapist. And these are cards that really help kids understand their emotions and recognize the feelings of others, help them learn about self-talk so that they can get comfortable helping themselves through experiences where they're not getting things they want or things aren't going their way or learning to listen to their bodies. And it really helps grownups support kids during big feelings and use language that is attainable and accessible. So visit emotionalintelligenceforkids.com for a limited time to get 50% off when you use the promo code HUMANS at checkout. That's emotionalintelligenceforkids.com, promo code HUMANS. And right now go to emotionalintelligenceforkids.com to get 50% off with the promo code HUMANS. Emotionalintelligenceforkids.com. Promo code HUMANS to get a limited time offer of 50% off the program exclusively for listeners of Raising Good Humans podcast. Lastly, and having nothing to do with social emotional intelligence other than knowing that it is so good to get outside and 93% of your life is spent indoors. But so many of our favorite moments are outdoors and we know that the fresh air is so good for us, gives you a sense of peace and calm and chill and warmer weather is almost here for those of you who are 
not on the West Coast, it's even more important to want to make the most of it with Outer, which is a new outdoor furniture company, purposely designed furniture to get you outdoors more. Outer has modular designs to customize your space, life-proof material, over 1,000 neighborhood showrooms, plus they have a online virtual showroom so that you can feel like you're outside and checking out your new furniture and you don't have to leave the comfort of your home. Outer Furniture comes with best-in-class warranties like 10 years for their chic aluminum line and two-week trial for free returns. So see the difference at liveouter.com slash humans. Plus, for a limited time, get $300 off and free shipping. This is Outer's best offer anywhere, and it's only available to podcast listeners and only for a limited time. Get $300 off and free shipping at liveouter.com slash humans, liveouter.com slash humans. Terms and conditions do apply. I do hope kids are giving, getting opportunities to grow their compassion muscle more. It does feel like that's part of this is just like the opportunity to be allowed to see the world as it is not saying developmentally like that you take a three-year-old and you show them all the, <laughs> the, the reasons why they should understand the world as it is, but more just over time as you grow up that you aren't, I, I love your, the, the tyranny of optimism. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And that came from my friend, Susan David, the psychologist who, um, she's amazing, you know, and she had that story when she was a teenager and her father died of cancer. And, and Susan is a very upbeat kind of person, just naturally. That's just her, that's just her temperament. But on top of that, she was getting all these signals from the culture that even though her beloved father had just died, that she should kind of go around acting as if everything was okay. So, you know, right after she died, he died, she went right back to school and went to her classes and chatted with her friends and appeared to the outer world as if everything was fine. And, and that went on for months and months. In the meantime, she was secretly throwing up all her food, descending into bulimia. And the thing that brought her out was she had an English teacher who had also lost a parent at an early age and I think had a glimmer of what she was at, what Susan was actually going through. And the English teacher passed out blank journals one day to the class and told the class, just write down the truth of what you're feeling. Just write it all down. And 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 Susan said the teacher was looking straight at her when she handed out those notebooks. And so she started writing it all down and she calls, I, I actually have goosebumps now as I'm telling this story. She calls that a revolution in her notebook because it was, it was what set her free. So it's this thing about being able to tell the actual truth of our feelings sets us free as opposed to, you know, what, what our culture tells us, which is don't talk about them. And I think like it, that that cultural message it comes from a fear of if we say too much then we'll be wallowing in them and yeah i mean there is such a thing as wallowing and 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 that's obviously not the answer i think we would do better to just a matter of fact approach to our emotions which is you know 
all different emotions are going to come up and yeah, that's what it is. So we're not, we're not staying in any particular emotion unnecessarily for an unnecessarily long time, but we're also not pretending that it doesn't exist. We're just in it as it happens. And we know that, that our emotional states change all the time. Mm -hmm. I do think we tend to not want to mention something. You feel a sting or a melancholy or a pain or a, you know, I'm trying to list different feelings that people might consider more challenging. And sometimes with our kids, we just think if we don't mention it, maybe they feel fine because they are, they present as feeling fine. So we just don't want to address it. And if we address it and we just name it, it doesn't mean we're sitting and wallowing in it. And maybe it opens up something that's more challenging for us as the adults to see our children say like, yeah, I was thinking about that sad thing today. I was, you know, in, in the case with Susan David, like, yeah, I am thinking about my dad. Whereas that, and I think from the adult's perspective, sometimes people just confuse what you said, which is wallowing with just matter of fact, you're not, not going to have this child feel this feeling. They're just not sharing it with you because it hasn't been normalized and it hasn't been given permission to emerge when it does. And I do think there is something really relieving for kids to find out, hey, you can feel really sad right in this moment and also in 10 minutes not feel really sad. And none of those things like all, and then again in five days and all of that is just part of the deal. Yes, exactly. Exactly, exactly that. Yeah, I'm actually thinking of one of my children in particular. I find that it's almost magic. It's like when something is bothering him, I discovered as a parent that all I really have to do is just ask him a lot of questions about it and have him verbalize it. And as soon as he's gotten it all out, he feels fine again. I did almost that classic men are from Mars, women are from Venus thing. Of I did the thing of trying to fix the problem. Like he would come home with some, you know, like social conflict at school or something. And I would be like, what about this? What about this? And then I realized he doesn't need any of that. All he really needs is to verbalize it to a sympathetic ear and then it's done. It's, it's funny because when, when that happens with either of my kids and I go into, even if I know better not to, it's still, that has no impact on my behavior. (laughs) So I'll go into this moment of wanting to fix whatever or give advice or anything that is not what I would maybe recommend professionally, but I'll do it. (laughs) And they're like, so annoyed (laughs) because they just wanted to get it out. And then they're like, stop talking about it. Stop harping on this. Like, stop trying to fix this. I just wanted to, you know, like that was it. And it's such a nice reminder. And I do think children are wonderful teachers, but I can't tell you how many times I have the information in my head from a, like, what would be a healthy moment, a healthy psychological interaction right now? Or how could I frame this to support my children? Or how can I just be in this moment? And I won't think I'm just going to take a breath and walk in the room and we're going to just connect. And then all these things go away. And I just, I see flying out of my mouth, all the stuff that sort of prohibits them from getting to just experience the the moment of feeling felt and feeling like that's, that's where they're at. And that that's, and then that's that. And like, it's just because it's, I guess I'm saying this to say, this is all so challenging because it's not 
how most of us were brought up. It's not how it's not in most of our nervous systems to respond this way. And it takes so much conscious presence. And it's like, we all are going to get it wrong sometimes. Yeah, I think that's right. Absolutely. And I will tell you also, probably the, the question people are asking me most often with bittersweet is, how do I know if I acknowledge these feelings that I'll ever be able to come out again? You know, so it's kind of like what we've been talking about, but there really is a kind of fear of like getting mired in a kind of quicksand, you know? Yeah. And I actually do think it's really exactly the opposite because, yeah, there's something about being attuned to impermanence where you also start to really accept the the difficult emotions are just as impermanent as as the exultant ones, you know, they, they're all just changing constantly. That's what you really start to notice. And so you, you, you don't fear the quicksand of that emotion because you know it's impermanent. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And you also can see how the, the more difficult emotions are connected to, I don't know, like when you're in those moments, you're, you're, you're really never alone because there's always been other people who have gone there before you or with you, you know, and if you are inclined, like the way I am to like a lot of reading and music and that kind of thing, all you have to do is open a book or go to your playlist and you can be connected to all those humans instantly. Uh, It's so true. Like I was thinking (laughs) about the day that I got separated within, this was like before, I guess when you would still have a CD in your car, that's how long it's been, which is- Right, right. That was a while ago. I got, she must have FedExed me a mix. And it was like all music that was the lived experience I was having in some way. I mean, it wasn't like a direct country music song about divorce, (laughs) but but it was just like songs that I connected with that made me cry. And then sprinkled in were like these amazing like woman power songs. Uh And I don't know if I ever told her this, but I could not have played that more. that mix. And it really gave me like on these drives, I would just take these drives and have the the range of emotions that I would want to experience from like laughter and joy to sobbing. And it wasn't wallowing. It was truly just like a way of connecting to the fact that so many other people must be listening to this music for various things that are going on in their lives. There was just something so like it was so universal. There are songs here about this feeling. Like I just felt so um, not alone. And same thing with, yeah, even the books that you choose. It's not that you're like, I, and I, I got that too, like in moments in life when, when certain friends will send you a few books that are related to the experience you're having. It's not a wallowing. It's like a connection. Exactly. And you might cry, but it's not because it's a bad thing. And I think that that framework from your book is just reminding everybody that some of the things that we think are very private and shameful in terms of our emotional experiences are just like the fabric of being a human being. And if we can, you know, and, and, and I'm certainly connecting this back to parenting just because of the nature of this podcast. But if we can give our children the magical gift of not forcing them to figure out other ways around feelings to actually just honor them, I just, I I can't imagine how much more they will 
thrive and feel connected in this world as adults. Yeah, absolutely. And and I do think the thing of letting children know that these feelings, that they're they're natural and everybody has them and that they don't last is very helpful. But I, I do, I, with, with children especially, I do keep coming back in my mind, I'm realizing, to, to the word matter of fact. And I think about it too in the context, and I, I know this is a subject for another day, but all the work that I've done with shy and quiet and introverted children. And I think with shy children, telling them, oh, don't be shy or, or you're not shy, like that doesn't work. But but instead saying to them, oh, yeah, you're feeling shy. Yeah, a lot of people feel that way. I've felt that way lots of times. Here's what I do when I feel that way. Let's talk about what you could do when you get to the party if you're if you're having that shy feeling. Let's talk about some some of the things you could do to make yourself feel better at that moment. And and, and you're doing so you're, you're having that conversation in a light tone of voice. It's not a big deal. It's not a small deal. It's just part of life. That's what you're conveying. And you're also acknowledging some people feel shy more than others. Because if you just, if you say to a kid, everybody feels that way, they'll be like, well, I noticed that my friend seems to feel this way very rarely, whereas, <laughs> whereas it's bothering me all the time. So you, so, so the adult is not telling me the truth here. So the point is like, you have to say the truth, but, but it's also just part of things, you know? Right. The story of the truth isn't so dramatic. Exactly. 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 I cannot wait to talk to you about the shy, quiet, child. And I do hope to have another conversation because that work is so important and it comes up so much. And I have such a personal connection to it because I am not shy. I mean, I am sometimes shy, but I, so like I spent a, like I get so in, it's so upsetting when we think of shy as a criticism. Like I, I feel defensive because I have a a kid in my life who's particularly quiet and I get defensive because I, I just don't love the framing that there is something to be fixed about that. I know. And and yeah, this is a whole longer conversation, but it's very tricky because excessive, I, I would say excessive shyness is painful for the child or for the adult. So it's not so much that you want to fix it exactly, but I, I, I do think there are strategies that can, re- can alleviate that pain, but that there's something about a shy temperament that comes with all kinds of bounties. And so like the, oh. the sort of underlying nature is what really, far from needing to be fixed, it needs to be honored and celebrated at the same time that the particularly paralyzing moments of shyness can be addressed, you know, and, and, and given help. (sighs) Well, I can't wait to have that conversation as well. (laughs) We definitely will. Okay. So acknowledging social media as, as well as psychology, as well as optimism in its true form versus maybe the form that it expresses itself in the world. I wonder if you could just address like how to counterbalance some of that focus on like manifesting and positive. Again, there are many benefits to finding the good and hunting for the good and gratitude that are not about like positivity and optimism are not bad words. It's just that I think they've been taken hostage and misused maybe. And I just wonder if there's a way to counterbalance some of the 
ways that people, children and parents and people are going to encounter that versus this bittersweet sentiment of kind of a whole humanity approach to to life. Yeah, I mean, so positivity and optimism are wonderful states of being. I guess all I would say is they're no better and they're no worse than moments of bittersweetness and poignancy. What I'm really trying to say is that all all of these states, these are all part of the human condition, that some humans have a tendency to some of these states more than to others. Like we all know that from our experience. We know there are some people who are just going to be like unflaggingly optimistic no matter what's happening. And then there are some people who are going to be listening to Les Miserables on their playlist all the time. And that's just how that is. Um, and, and, and that each of these different states pays all kinds of dividends. And we, we're all very familiar with the dividends paid by the states of huge optimism. And we've been less aware of the dividends paid by bittersweetness, but the dividends are rich and deep and meaningful and, and that's all. So, you know, if, if, if you've got a child who tends more to those bittersweet states of being, I would say that is a child who's probably going to show a lot of creativity. That is a child who's probably going to find a lot of deep meaning in whatever their life path is. That is a child who's probably going to be oriented towards a state of of healing, whether in obvious terms of like, you know, medical care or social work or whatever, or or in much less obvious terms, that's just probably going to be their orientation in life. And all of that is to be celebrated. I love that. Thank you for your book. It is so beautiful as usual. And I really hope that I get to chase you down again in a little bit to talk about <laughs> your other work. Well, thank you so, so much. Thank you for listening. I am so excited to introduce this audience to Susan Kane, and I'm looking forward to having her back so that we can talk about The Quiet Child and The Quiet Revolution.